the children that go back to children's church whenever we sing, and you can tell they recognize a song, and you can hear those voices in the back behind you singing. I really look forward to that, and today was a great example of it. This morning we're continuing in our sermon series through the book of Nehemiah, and We've, uh, we've established our purpose kind of in, in the study and what we're looking for is Nehemiah provides for us an excellent example of how Christians are supposed to pursue God's will in their lives by executing plans God's way. Today, we might come to the most impractical section of Scripture that we've studied yet in this series. That's because we're going to be talking about something that I know very few people have ever had to face in their lives. It's discouragement. I know this morning that sitting amongst us are very few people that have ever dealt with discouragement themselves. We might have heard about it or read about it, but I know none of us have ever come up against situations or circumstances that just leave us feeling tired. Leave us feeling like there isn't much to push on towards. But you know, it's in the Bible, so I thought we'd study it anyway. Maybe someday, if we ever do have to face discouragement, we'll be prepared. This morning, if you have your Bibles, I ask you to open them up with me to Nehemiah chapter 6. We'll be reading the first 13 verses. And after I pray, I'd like to read this section of Scripture out loud, but I ask that you would have your Bible open in front of you, that you'd read along with me this morning as I do so. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning with hearts that are ready to worship. Lord, we realize to sin is to miss the mark, and we've just sang that song, and we've asked you to bind our hearts with a fetter that bound by your goodness that you would guide us and that we would not miss the mark. Lord, I pray that you would take our hearts this morning, that you would speak truth into them, that you'd allow us to get out of the way that we would be open to the word that you have for us. And God, I pray that we would leave here this morning encouraged by the truth of your goodness. In Jesus' heavenly name I pray. Amen. Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 1, the Bible says, Now when Sanballat, then Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set the doors and the gates, Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hekka Ephraim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. And I sent messengers to them saying, I am doing a great work and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? And they sent to me four times in this way and I answered them in the same manner. In the same way, Samballot for the fifth time sent to his servant to me with an open letter in his hand, and in it was written, It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intended to rebel, that this is why you are building the wall, and according to these reports you wish to become their king. 
And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem, there is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Then I sent to him saying, no such thing as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Delaiah, son of Mehetebel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in the house of God. Within the temple, let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away? And what man, such as I, could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sambalat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired, that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin, and so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess Noadiah and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. In this passage of Scripture, we find... Well, let's set the stage for a second. If you haven't been here the past couple of weeks, you might not remember what's going on in Jerusalem at this time. But where we started was there have so far been two attempts to rebuild Jerusalem after Babylon conquered it. The Persian Empire is now in control. Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And he has made these, um, this request of the king and been granted permission and also granted provisions to return to Jerusalem and take on this work to rebuild the wall. It all started with a burden that God allowed to be placed in his heart. And here we are. The work has been being done faithfully. And so far up to this point, we have found that discouragement absolutely comes whenever people are working against us. Most notably, though, we have found that most of the division and most of the distraction, most of the delay in rebuilding the wall has actually come from the inside Jerusalem. Jews not taking care of themselves. To relate that to our terms, I think a safe way to compare that would be church members fighting against church members over things that don't really matter. And here, all this work's been done. These outside forces, Sambalat, Tobiah, Geshem, surrounded on all sides, have decided to rally against the efforts of Nehemiah to rebuild the wall. When we come to Nehemiah chapter 6, at this point, the walls have been rebuilt. The doors aren't set yet, but there's no gaps. A great work has been accomplished. We've already achieved the wall's full height. It's now or never, both on God's side and on the opposition side. If the enemy is going to cause distraction and prevent the wall from being completed, now is the time, or it will be too late. On God's side, Nehemiah, who is being obedient to what God has led him to do, the work's still not complete. I have a really bad habit of not finishing things. I don't know what it is about that last little bit. I just, 
when I was in school, you know, writing the paper, I'd get the paper written. I really don't want to go read what I just wrote. That last little bit of effort, that was the hardest part for me to do. Fortunately, I've never struggled with that whenever I'm eating a cake. Sometimes, and in this situation, God has left a long-term, large project before Nehemiah and led him in executing this plan. The last little bit of work that remains cannot be neglected. Just like for the enemy, it's now or never if he's going to provide real opposition and cause discouragement and cause this to be actually prevented. For Nehemiah, now is the time to complete the work or it will never be done. We find that in this now or never circumstance, the enemy has three real clear attempts to cause discouragement. The first one is compromise. You see Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem all send letters to Nehemiah, and they say, would you come and visit us in this plain? Where they're at and where this plain is, the plain of Ono would have been to the north of Jerusalem. It's kind of the halfway point. And this, watch this, because the enemy still works in the same way today. I'll meet you halfway if you'll just come out and meet me halfway. Nehemiah's response was, you want me to come to the plain of Ono? Oh no. He decides not to go. He has a couple of reasons for not going though. We'll talk about those in a moment. First, I want to make sure that we understand what the enemy's strategy was in asking for this compromise. The enemy's strategy in asking for this compromise was pretty simple. It's the same thing that we see today. If you can't beat them, why don't you just join them and then take over? This is the same thing that happens to Christians all over the world. One of the most dangerous places for evangelical ministry in the world today is in Africa. And I'm very thankful uh, to Dr. Holmes, uh, Brother Two was here the, the last week and was sharing with us some of the efforts at the publishing house, our, our publishing arm of the Baptist Missionary Association, what we're doing in Tanzania to provide sound biblical doctrine and material that teaches sound doctrine in Tanzania. Because what happens in places in the world where evangelicals go in and then step out, ultimately, real frequently, what we find is false doctrine has an easy place to take a foothold. Doctrinal teachings that aren't found in the Bible. Even Christians in America suffer this same fate. Social media becomes more popular and more teachers are online who do not promote sound biblical doctrine and I would even argue in some cases um, may not even be reading their Bibles say things that sound spiritual and sound correct and lure Christians in to listening to them and teaching them things that God has not instructed us. There's a real deceit. If you can't beat them, join them. False teachers aren't the only ones who present this problem. We allow people 
into our bodies and into our assemblies who present themselves as those that have good attitudes and good hearts and even a benevolence towards the kingdom of God. But they show their true colors whenever they would rather spend time fighting against each other than furthering the work that God has for us. Nehemiah's response to Sambalat and Tobiah and Geshem, asking him to come down from the wall, he rejects their offer five times for these reasons. One, he knew they were trying to kill him. How in the world could he have possibly known that these, uh, these three are trying to kill him? Nowhere in the Bible, nowhere in our text does it say that they sent these letters and they said, Nehemiah, would you please come down to this, uh, this field of Ono so that we can uh, hang out and we can kill you? The letters didn't contain that information. Nehemiah showed what spiritually mature people possess. It's called discernment. And it's the same thing that Christians need today whenever we're faced with teachers who are teaching us things that are not found in the Bible. Discernment. In Hebrews, the author tells us that discernment is a product of being spiritually mature. Spiritual babies, those that are, have come to faith and, and haven't yet spent time investing in their knowledge of God and everything else, frankly, do not possess discernment. They don't have it. If you need an illustration for that, you can think of my lovely children, Charlie and Charlotte, again. Because those babies have zero discernment. They will put anything in their mouth. I've matured a little bit. I only put some things in my mouth. Sometimes I'm still mistaken. Those that are more mature than I will know, you probably put less things in your mouth. It's discernment. Being able to recognize something for what it is. And we should be cautious here not to mistake discernment for callousness, for uh, overly cautiousness, or um, just being negative about a situation. Discernment is as much being able to see the bad in something that others overlook as it is being able to see the good in things that people overlook. But it takes a spiritually mature Christian to be able to discern anything. And we find Nehemiah definitely had that ability. In finding these letters, his first reason for not responding was he knew they were going to kill him. He practiced discernment. We should have the same attitude whenever we're scrolling online through social media and we see some sort of charismatic doctrine being presented, something that contradicts what the Bible clearly teaches. Well... We're spiritually mature. First, we have to know what the Bible says to realize that there's a contradiction. It requires spiritual maturity. We should be able to look at that and say, I'm not going to listen to this. They look friendly, but they mean to kill me. Second, Nehemiah refused the offer because he was convicted to do the work that God had set out before him. We'd seen this before, but 
Nehemiah had the privilege, really, of God placing a burden inside of his heart in such a way that he realized that it was now or never just as much for him as it was for uh, uh, Geshem and Sambalat and Tobiah and all these others who were trying to work against him, even the nobles in Jerusalem who were working against him at this time. He realized that it was such an urgent point in the work that was before him that he needed to remain focused on what was before him. One of the most difficult things about being in ministry is you often have to not look at some of the other things going on in the world. And and this this applies to any role of Christian leadership that we're faced with. There's all sorts of organizations that are doing great things. There's all sorts of uh, things that we can contribute to and be a part of. But we also have to recognize that God hasn't called us there. God might not have called us in that direction. He didn't place us there. He placed us here. And just because there's something great, if we feel called to go to it, then we should go to it. But if we just see the need, it's just as important for Christians to recognize that there's a need where we're at. And contributing to ministry where we are at is just as important as it is to contributing to other places of benevolence and, and, and service in other parts of the world and other organizations doing different things. We have to have a leader's focus in order to not divide our attention. So the second reason Nehemiah refused this was because he was convicted about the work that he was doing. And third... I just threw this one in here. Nehemiah knew that Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem had nothing to offer him. It was a distraction. Remember, Sambalat and Tobiah are the same ones in Nehemiah chapter 2 whenever Nehemiah first presented to the Jews the, the work that he wanted to be presented and the providence that had been given to him and that we have the means to do this and that we should do this. Sambalat and Tobiah said, you should not do this. And they tried to shut down the project before it even began. And Nehemiah told them, what did he tell them? You have no part or claim in Jerusalem. He realized that the work that he had to do, had, there was no compromise that needed to be achieved. He had everything that he needed provided to him through God. Everything that he needed to accomplish the work that was set before him was already provided. We've talked about the first attempt of the enemy in this now or never situation to shut down the project to rebuild the wall. Let's look at the second. Sambalat sent an open letter to Nehemiah. Open letter. Are you wondering why I'm emphasizing that? Culturally, during Nehemiah's day, it would have been um, the expectation that Letters to important people would be sealed so that only that official could open it up and read it. To send an open letter with this messenger was a sign of disrespect. He's already airing out dirty laundry in front of everyone. And let's look at what's contained in the letter. Verse 6, Nehemiah 6, verse 6. It is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, 
that you and the Jews intend to rebel. Now, this is a serious accusation to say that the Jews wanted to rebel. Bear in mind that the Persian Empire didn't handle any thought of uprising with any sort of um, leniency. If there was a whiff, any sort of opposition or rebellion and the people that the Persian Empire um, had domain over, it was shut down immediately. Unfortunately for Nehemiah, he had been sent to Jerusalem with the permission of King Artaxerxes, who he, he was cupbearer to. He had a relationship with him, and he had been given permission to rebuild the wall. And in fact, after he rebuilds the wall, he's supposed to go back to Susa, the capital. But here Sambalit raises a claim in an open letter that anyone could have heard, read, that they were intending to rebel. Imagine the fear that would have already started to be stirred up if you've heard that the leader that you were following, that other people were saying that he was going to cause rebellion, and you knew what the Persian Empire was capable of. You can see how disrespectful this was already. This is why you're building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. You know, something I notice about this is it starts out the same. We know that this isn't true. Nehemiah responds in a moment. He doesn't spend a lot of time responding. He just says, you're pulling this out of thin air, buddy. There's nothing true in what you're saying. But doesn't this start out the same way that most gossip and Lies start out. Have you ever noticed if you run the gossip trail back all the way to its source, you'll never be able to find the source? That's because the person that starts it always starts it with, you know what everyone's saying. Isn't that the same thing that Sam Bollett says? It's reported among the nations. Among the nations people are saying this. Everyone's saying it. You know what makes gossip gossip? When you got to tell somebody before you find out it's not true. When you got to hurry up and get the word out before you find out it's not true. The second attempt of the enemy is to defame the character of the whoever it is that God has already placed in a position to accomplish a great work. This is libel. This is libel. It's a lie. It's written down on paper. It's a false truth that is written for the purpose of defaming somebody's character. By the way, there is no person that has the privilege or authority or right to defame somebody's character with libelous language. Nehemiah, his response is kind of baffling. A lot of times if somebody was to say something slanderous against us, we might launch an effort to try and defend ourselves or argue our way out of why what that person has said isn't true. But Nehemiah doesn't spend any time doing that. He simply responds, what you've said has come out of thin air. You've invented it and it's not true. And he moves on and he remains focused on the work. 
There's a couple of things. If he would have become distracted in launching an argument and defending himself, he would have been distracted from the work that God had called him to do. It would have been the same problem. It would have gone against the conviction that he had in the previous argument that we just made, that he was convicted to do the work that was before him. He doesn't allow himself to become distracted with this libelous language. And there's something that we find in the heart of a leader that we can rest on. When we take care of our character, we can trust God to take care of our reputations. Even with libelous language, slander, even with words that have been thrown out and scattered amongst the people in this open letter, Nehemiah could trust in God to strengthen his hands for the work that he was called to without paying any attention to defending false allegations. He doesn't have to spend time defending himself because he knew that with his character, he could trust God to secure his reputation. And then finally, the third attempt of the enemy. Notice now that it's not coming from these outside forces, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, but now it comes from a friend. Nehemiah heard that Shemaiah had been locked up, closed up, and been at home. He went to visit him, and, uh, and, and his friend says, Nehemiah, I've got bad news. They're coming to kill you. They're going to come you in the night and they're going to kill you. What we should do is we should run away somewhere where we can be safe. We should lock ourselves up inside of the temple. So that the enemy came the first time and he offered compromise. The second time he attempted to defame Nehemiah's reputation with lies. The third time, he comes with threats. I'm going to kill you. By night, you're going to be dead. We should run away. We should go and hide. Remember, again, what was Nehemiah's conviction that kept him working in Jerusalem? He was convicted over the work that God had called him there to. He was focused to achieve the work that God had given to him. So here we are, his friend, giving him advice that he should run and hide. You know, the worst part about discouragement, you never know when it's going to come. You never know when it's going to pop up. In Nehemiah's case, they were almost near a, a point of celebration and triumph whenever the wall was completely finished. Already the wall had been uh, reached its original height. All they had left to do was to hang the gates and the bars and put the doors on. Bam. Discouragement. Same is true in our lives. We never know whenever circumstances are going to come up that level us. We never know when the enemy is going to attack in such ways to cause threats, to cause liable, to even uh, make us fear for our own lives. But if we're 
spiritually mature and we're pushing on towards maturity and we're starting to possess this discernment, we know that there's no circumstance that we come up and come up against in our life that God hasn't allowed to happen. Even when our friends turn against us. When our friends offer us bad advice. When we've shut down the enemy in the past two attempts and and things are still moving forward and our friends come to us and say, we should run and we should hide and we should just stop what we're doing. Maybe it's not really worth it. Perhaps the worst kind of discouragement is whenever we feel isolated and alone. As surely Nehemiah felt, as his friend told him to give up the work. But again, we see the mark of a spiritually mature person practicing discernment. Nehemiah was familiar with God's word. We might make reference to Numbers 18.7, which says clearly that a lay person shouldn't enter into the temple behind the altar of incense lest he should die. In King Uzziah's day, what happened? Didn't he break out? Weren't there consequences? And here this friend tells him to do something. A prophet, no less, tells him to do something that violates God's word. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to be able to recognize when somebody's giving you bad advice. If we understand the Scripture for what they are, As God's breathed out word, totally uh, profitable for all things pertaining to faith and for life. Well, if somebody's giving me advice that goes against what God's already told me in here, it's probably bad advice. And I said probably facetiously. It's absolutely bad advice. Without a doubt, it's the worst advice they could possibly give you. There is no compromise on moral or spiritual issues that is of value to a Christian. And Nehemiah, while he might have felt isolated, and while he might have felt alone, and I'm sure that he felt discouraged, we find in verse 13, in verse 14, Nehemiah's prayer. Again, turning all of these issues over to God. Realizing that the same God that convicted him to come to this place and to accomplish this work and to build this wall is the same God that would see him through this situation. In fact, isn't it God that Nehemiah turns to in verse 9 after he hears that um, uh, slander and defamatory language is being leveled against him? He says in verse 9, O God, strengthen my hands. In the face of people speaking poorly against me and trying to defame the work that I have for you, God, strengthen my hands that I wouldn't be focused on this distraction. In the face of his friends giving him bad advice and feeling alone, Nehemiah first refutes him and says, I'm not going to do that. He uses discernment and recognizes that what he's actually asking him to do is to sin and enter the throne of God to demonstrate fear, which is the opposite of faith. So that his character can truly be damaged. So that there can be a root hold. So that there can be something to anchor these false accusations against. 
And Nehemiah responds by recognizing that it's against Scripture. And he says, What kind of a man am I to run away? And he turns all of this over to God. Another imprecatory prayer. Remember Tobiah and Sambalat, O oh my God, according to these things that they did, and also the prophetess, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. In the face of discouragement, things that God allows us to go through because he knows that he's capable of seeing us through them. We can be reminded that God is calling us to a closer relationship with him. No matter the circumstances or the things that we're going through, I joked this morning that I thought no one in this room would ever have experienced any type of discouragement in their life. And you all know that I was joking. That's not true. People face discouragement as young as eight years old. Maybe younger than that. I don't know. When was the first time you faced discouragement? I think I was pretty young probably. But it just gets worse, doesn't it? But God's called us to this time and this place with that purpose. He's allowed such discouragement to take place in our lives. Not because he thinks that we're strong enough to get through it, but because he wants to show us that he's strong enough to strengthen us through it. One of the most misquoted verses, I think, or I don't even know if it exists. I don't think it does. God won't allow you to go through something that you're not strong enough to go through. By the way, that's not in the Bible. You know what I think the Bible does teach, though? God won't allow you to go through anything alone. The enemy wants you to feel isolated. He wants you to feel discouraged and threatened. God wants you to feel joyful. He wants you to feel his love and his presence. He wants you to feel the strength that he has for you. The worst thing that we could do is to give in to the enemy's threats, false allurements of safety. The best thing that we can do in the face of any sort of discouragement is to run to the God that can take care of everything before us. This morning we'll sing a song of invitation. And during this time, this is an opportunity for you to reflect. We've heard God's Word preached this morning, and I pray that I've preached it faithfully. But the truth is, I'll never be as good a preacher as the Holy Spirit. So when we end a sermon, what we're really saying is, Holy Spirit, would you take over now? Because the preacher said a lot of general things and a lot of generalities, but I've got some really specific things going on in my life, and Holy Spirit, I know that you dwell there. And I need you to apply this to my life and convict me of action.
So as we stand and sing, this is an opportunity for you to reflect on your application.